0: Today is July twenty fourth, two 2012, and my guest is Scott Atlas, the David and Joan Treadle Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. His latest book is In Excellent Health, Setting the Record Straight on America's Healthcare. Scott, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: When you combine the public and private expenditures for healthcare in the United States, you get a pretty big number. Uh, that in itself tells you nothing about the effectiveness of U.S. healthcare. It might be a good thing. It might be a bad thing. But you often hear that the U.S. spends more and actually gets less for its money than other systems, that U.S. health care outcomes are terrible relative to the rest of the world. So ignoring the expenditure side, at least for the moment, is it true that U.S. health care outcomes are mediocre relative to the rest of the world?
1: Well, I think this is really the, the, uh, one of the biggest problems about misinformation that the public has been hearing. The quality of U.S. healthcare compared to the rest of the world is actually far superior in almost all chronic diseases, almost all treatments, almost all cancers, uh, screening, access to tests, access to new treatments, all medical outcomes, if you really look at the facts in the scientific or medical peer-reviewed literature. Yet most of the reports don't do that. They take... What are generally very coarse endpoints, life expectancy or infant mortality, things that uh, have contributions from many things outside of healthcare itself, come up with a ranking and then publish that as if that is the statement on the quality of care. So the, the short answer is absolutely not. The quality of U.S. health care is, is far better than what, what everyone has been talking about and the facts show it.
0: Well, let's start with life expectancy, which that would, on the surface, seem to be what you'd want to look at. I mean, what would you care about more than how long you live? And, of course, one answer would be we care how the quality of quality life. But certainly, life expectancy is an important measure of, of health care outcomes. Uh, when you take the United States and put it in world perspective, where does
1: the United States rank
0: in a measure like that, roughly? Are we near the top, middle?
1: Well, if you go, uh, again, if you go by the rankings that most people cite, which is the uh, Year 2000 World Health Organization report. I think the US was something like 37th, something which is like that. Disappointing. Which is, which is disappointing and, and actually bad, even if you don't consider the expenditures, because we are a very modern, advanced nation. Correct. There's no question about that. But then when you look at the statistic, uh, this, this is the problem. Life expectancy is not really solely a measure of healthcare. No doubt. There are many, many factors that go into it. And the U.S. has a lot of, uh, there are many, many significant differences between the United States population and the way we measure things than other countries. Even countries in Western Europe who are just as sophisticated and just as modern. So, uh, the, the statistic itself is very misleading. Uh,
0: what would be an example you would you wouldn't think so I mean you, either you're either alive or not so in terms of how it's gathered that would seem to be relatively straightforward in a developed country at least I understand in undeveloped countries maybe they're not as careful with the records of the United States I think they're we're, we're pretty good with birth dates and deaths right so we have a pretty good idea of how people how long people actually live who or at least were born here in the United States Um what else would matter besides that if we're, say, comparing U.S. life expectancy to Western Europe?
1: Well, one example that uh, has been published um, by people in Iowa, University of Iowa, is the cause of death. Because if you're talking about health care, you, you would think you'd want to talk about the things that are related to healthcare. care. And uh, one ranking, and this was done uh, to the rankings in the OECD countries, which are all the most developed countries right. in the world... Ranked the U.S. toward the bottom for life expectancy,
0: consistent with the number you just said. Consistent
1: with the numbers I said. uh, Yet, when they uh, compensated for differences in suicide and immediate death from high-speed motor vehicle accidents, where the healthcare system is
0: probably not going to be able to save you, no matter how. Yeah, the healthcare system
1: has nothing to do with surviving gunshot wound to the head, basically. Or an accident at 60 miles an hour at a, without a seatbelt. Exactly, yeah. high-speed accidents. And when they uh, compensated for that by giving everyone the same uh, number of suicides and instant deaths like that and then redoing the ranking, the U.S. elevated to number one life expectancy. Number sounds one sounds
0: like a cheap statistical trick, but it could be true. It could be the right thing to do because if it was done correctly, clearly high-speed automobile deaths are... And suicides. Are, those two things should not... Uh, indict your healthcare system, but of course, there's some vagueness about how we measure high-speed automobile death. I suppose there's yeah. some uncertainty, but, but
1: when you that. really look at the numbers on suicides, there's an extraordinarily high uh, number of different uh, difference in the frequency of suicide in the U.S. versus these other countries in the ranking. Much higher, much higher in the U.S.
0: As, so- as is automobile accidents per per capita. You're saying, I assume.
1: Yeah, I haven't looked at the exact number of automobile accidents. But another another example of that would be just looking at uh, what is the cause of death. And when you look at uh, adults, children and young adults through, I think, the age of 40, something like uh, 25, 30 percent of deaths only were due to an illness. Right. Okay, so health care uh, quality is talking really about, generally speaking, about illnesses and diagnosing and treating them. So you know, there's a it's a very very coarse statistic. Of course,
0: the other factor which you mentioned uh, and discussed extensively in the book is lifestyle differences. So even with health care outcomes that are related to the healthcare system, such as diagnosis and treatment of illness, um, lifestyles, genetics are the two biggest things that are going to affect your healthcare outcomes, your life expectancy. Uh, uh, outside of the healthcare system
1: itself, right? So those are going to matter. Absolutely. Lifestyle is very different, as the rest of the world is learning with globalization. Uh, when you look at, uh, for example, the one that's, that's probably has the most impact on illness and survival is obesity. And we've heard a lot about this. And when you look at the data, the U.S. has a far higher frequency of obesity defined scientifically as a certain body mass index a far higher frequency of proportion of the population that, that is obese compared to other countries. And with that uh, goes a significant decrease in life expectancy. For instance, uh, it is estimated that from people who survive to age 40, if you just take people from 40 and over, obesity decreases the this the life expectancy beyond age 40 of about six years. And so when you, when you add up the, compared to non-obese. So when there is this striking difference two times or triple, up to triple sometimes, depending on the country, the frequency of obesity in the population of the U.S. versus others, you're going to have a significant impact on the overall life expectancy. And of course,
0: it, it would be, you mentioned that in the raw data, the U.S. is 37th in the world in life expectancy. If the difference between first and 37th was 81 to 79.6, you might say it's not very important. You're suggesting that these obesity numbers actually have a significant impact on both the the ranking and that you'd care about it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you bring up another point here, which is the differences in the ranking that people use uh, generally as the kind of fundamental indictment of U.S. quality of care was the World Health Report from 2000. And when you really look at their data, you you see that the differences between number three and number 30 uh, were not even what we call statistically significant. When you look at their own data, yet they still went on to rank it. Now, what do I mean statistically significant? Statistically significant, for those who don't understand that, is a difference that cannot be accounted for by simply random variations in the data. They have nothing to do with the question being asked. And so... Uh, when you say, "Okay, you're ranked number 30," but your answer is essentially your data point is the same as the the ranking of number three, then why do you report it as rank number 30? No, three Cause it sells, equals Because it sells
0: reports. Obviously, it makes people pay attention and it's exciting. But the uh, what what's striking in in the chart that you have in your in your book is basically you you have confidence intervals around these. Uh, overall weighted measures of, of health care and they're quite large. They The the top of the confidence interval and the bottom encompass large ranges of the entire data set. Which Absolutely. Is, which, is, which is not encouraging. One thing you don't talk about, I don't think, in the book, which I've always been uh, fascinated by, is the trend in life expectancy over time, which to some extent, obviously not imperfectly, but to some extent, within a country, controls for uh, genetics outside of immigration, at least over short periods of time, the gene pool of the United States is roughly constant, uh, the, the, or the differences are, are, are small and, and can be ignored uh, to the extent that lifestyle is, is similar at the beginning and end of a time period. Obviously, if you go through a period of exercise uh, intensity or uh, obsession with obesity or, or not worrying about obesity, you can get trends like that. And of course, obesity has been, I think, increasing in the United States as, as officially measured. So that works to shorten life expectancy. Uh, The obesity changes over time. The gene's probably the same. Uh, And yet life expectancy in the US climbs steadily every single year. The last time I haven't looked in the last few years, but every year there's an annual report, news uh, item, US life expectancy increased again, which given the challenge of obesity does suggest that it's getting worse, given that it's getting worse, suggests that the healthcare system is getting better.
1: Correct? Yeah, absolutely. And to, to be fair, life expectancy has been increasing in many of these countries, if not all, for reasons other than healthcare. For reasons other income, than healthcare, yeah. but also benefiting from the medical advances that often originate in the U.S., which is kind of a separate. Uh, well, we'll come back discussion.
0: I want, I want to come talk. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But one of the problems with life expectancy data, of course, is that. I want to turn to our next topic, which you devote a lot of time to in the book, which is infant mortality. Uh, infant mortality has a huge impact on life expectancy because Absolutely. if you die, at, an infant that dies at six months enters into the average as a 0.5, half a year life, uh, pulling down the average. And what we often care about, it's really life expectancy, of course, a mix of a bunch of things. It's their social phenomenon like suicide, uh, but a high infant mortality rate leads to a, a low life expectancy but once you survive infancy, it's then a very poor measure of your true expectation. So we might often care more about your life expectancy conditional on reaching, a, like, say, 40, as you mentioned before. But life expectancy is important in and of itself forget a statistical impact, and that's another measure where the U.S. often does very poorly in these international rankings, which is surprising given... You
1: mean infant mortality. Infant mortality.
0: What did I say? You said life
1: expectancy. Like, yeah. No,
0: infant mortality is another area where the U.S. often very poorly, yes. and you suggest that's very uh, misleading. Why?
1: Absolutely, and and here you get into there. There are many reasons, but one of the big ones that we kind of dispensed with uh, in, with the uh, regard to life expectancy is the actual measurement, because the measurements here are very critical, and this is very different from U.S. compared to other countries, including those in Western Europe, where in the U.S. Uh, for there are many differences. One important one is that we count every birth, and birth is defined as any sign of life, actually, ironically, using the very strict criteria defined by the World Health Organization. So we count any heart rate, any respiration, no matter how premature the infant, no matter how small the infant, no matter how immediate the death is. Other countries, including many civilized countries, many countries that we think of as similar to the U.S., don't count births if uh, as live births if the baby does not uh, survive for, say, 24 hours, if the baby does not measure a certain size or weight, if the baby doesn't survive for even 48 hours or even a week. And so when you throw away the deaths from the most fragile infants in the denominator of a fraction, your calculation is grossly distorted compared to those who counted even the weakest babies who, who had a very small chance of survival, like we do in the U.S. Yeah, it, it's um, uh, having been blessed with
0: four children and seeing the, the unbelievable uh, medical technology that's available to a, a, a newborn baby and a, and a, and a mother. Uh, the dads don't. We, we get a comfortable chair. That's, you know, that's the limited technology if we're lucky, but we don't deserve anything more than that. But, you know, given that, it's hard to believe you'd rather have your baby somewhere that has a lower, supposedly, infant mortality rate in the data. But uh, there are many countries that do, and you're suggesting that's misleading. And,
1: and, and there are many, and many, other, many other reasons as well, including things like the U.S. has a culture, a medical culture, of doing what I would call the full court press. Yeah. Every baby. So we, we go to great lengths to prolong and hopefully uh, end same, up having yeah. a success of survival of, like I say, the weakest, most vulnerable infants. Um, we we have a lot of other uh, confounding variables, like we we are very aggressive about in vitro fertilization, which has a secondary effect of multiple gestation pregnancy, twins, triplets. And these are higher risk, higher risk for premature birth, as well as more infant death. There's a lot of reasons where we go to very different uh, extent of trying to get survivals and trying to get births that actually, in the end, harm our overall statistics. Yeah, which is not what human beings should care about. Right.
0: Yeah, but policy wonks are going to use those, obviously. Uh, The number on in vitro fertilization is rather remarkable, actually. Uh, I don't remember it off the top of my head. I don't know if you do, but the, the proportion of U.S. births that are...
1: The frequency of triplets or more, I think, is um yeah. It's been expanding dramatically. I don't remember the number either off the top of my head from the from the graph, but I think you know the the point is that uh, you know as has recently been in the paper been in the paper uh, there's been millions and millions of babies now born by IVF in the U.S. and we have been uh, rather aggressive about implanting embryos. Uh, with the hope of getting a baby, and with that increased risk of multiple gestations.
0: Yeah, well, I happen to find one chart that's of interest here from the book. This is uh, infant mortality rate within the United States by pregnancy rate. So this is per thousand live births, which, of course, as you point out, includes very premature babies and, and high risk pregnancies. But if it's a single child, a single embryo, a single baby being born, the number is five point eight seven out of a thousand. Very un- very unlikely thank God, very unlikely that the infant dies. If you have quads, it's 146.48. So it's uh, it's almost 30 times. So an increase in the number of uh, multiple pregnancies, and it rises steadily with twins, triplets, quadruplets uh, within the United States because they're more at risk. Here's the triplet birth rate um, in the United States. Again, th- this doesn't compare it to other countries, but uh, in 1980, about 40%, 40 percent—40, excuse me—40 out of, of 100,000 live births were triplets. By 1998, that number had reached almost 200 per 100,000, so a fivefold increase in five-fold triplets. Five-fold increase, right? But that again—that would affect the numbers over time. But then, if you're measuring at a point in time and comparing to other nations with lower rates of multiple pregnant multiple gestations, you're going to get uh, a very different, a very different number. So, so the first point I think that's the first part of your book is that uh, a lot of these health outcomes that are used to indict the U.S. healthcare system are, are, are misleading for statistical reasons. But then you go on to talk about quite a number of interesting other types of outcomes that we would just use in common sense ways of judging uh, efficacy of healthcare uh, per se. For example, cancer survival rates. So, uh, if if you have cancer. It's if you have lung cancer, God forbid, or some other type of cancer. There's some genetic interactions, I assume, with potentially with the native population, but a lot of then your outcome is going to depend of, on early detection and then uh, treatment. So, how does the U.S. do relative to the rest of the world on something as crucial as that?
1: Yeah, uh, cancer is a, a very glaring example of the quality of U.S. healthcare being superior in all common cancers—the ones that we talk about, lung, breast, uh, etc. Prostate. The U.S. does better, significantly better, than all the countries of Western Europe uh, and the countries that are held up as models for healthcare reform. We do better in survival than the countries in the rare cancers as well. And, and there's a lot of, uh, factors that go into it. It's not just early detection. It's actually, it's treatment. It's, it's, uh, availability of cancer drugs. Most of the pharmaceutical agents that have become very important over the past decade are those in the, in cancer. Uh, and you know, interestingly, these, these articles in the peer-reviewed medical literature are coming out of European authors who say, right, forthright, uh, the U.S. has better cancer, uh, care than we, the authors say, in Western Europe. Um, so the, the facts in the medical literature, uh, I think, are, are rather obvious uh, that the U.S., uh, if you're, if you're going to be sick, and in this case cancer, you'd rather be in the United States than somewhere else. This doesn't just include people, by the way, with super quality health insurance and rich people or any kind of criticism. This is overall data. This is everyone in the system.
0: So let's take a few different, I don't know if, you're, if you know about this, uh, um, so feel free to, to duck this question. But if we talked about, say, three different types of uh, patients in America uh, under our current system. So under our current system, one type of patient might be someone who has a, access to world-class health care. Uh, they have a first-rate health insurance program. They don't have to spend any of their own money. They get cancer. They live near a, a world-class uh, hospital and world-class doctors. And they clearly get some of the best treatment, if not the best treatment in the world here in the United States. And we might think about someone who is who doesn't have access to that maybe geographically uh, for family reasons uh, but still has access to what you might call mainstream care, and then the third would be a person who doesn't have health care, who is going to be then dependent on who doesn't even, have health insurance. Has health? No, does not have health insurance. This right. third person. Yeah, Sorry, because I, I just want to. <laughs> no, no, correct. No, this
1: no. is another kind of big misconception. People equate. Maybe it's synonymous that somehow no health insurance in the U.S. equals no health I hate care, that. and, no, and that's no. simply wrong.
0: Yeah, no. I, if if I were a dishonest person, I would. Edit this part out of the podcast because that drives me nuts too. But so I meant health care insurance. So this person does not have employer provided insurance, as you and I have. Uh, this person uh, doesn't have uh, uh, any. Doesn't have financial. Doesn't have very much financial wherewithal. Period, and has mm-hmm. to uh, either presumably get Medicaid uh, and and get um, government aid. So what happens? What's the difference in Treatment and access to that and outcomes, but also just Mm -hmm. technology. You know, rich people get, and I would add, you know, the other issue I always think about is a heart attack because I always think, um, to take an extreme, that a a homeless person today gets better technology than President Eisenhower got in the 1950s because of technological advancement. And even a homeless person who walks into, can't walk, but gets taken into an emergency room gets some remarkable stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I, am I right there?
1: Well, I, I think this opens up a, a, a very important topic um, that has a lot of offshoot discussions. And, and this is really the difference in, in care uh, that someone gets in the US between private insurance and Medicaid, and as a third comparison, people with no insurance whatsoever. Okay, no Medicaid even. Right. Okay, and when you look, there are studies in the literature. In fact, numerous studies, study after study, that shows it in a variety of settings, whether it's heart disease, cancer, transplants, all kinds of things, people have better outcomes, better medical care if you even uh, just take the people who are just as sick from each of those populations, private insurance, Medicaid, and no insurance whatsoever, the worst outcomes Private insurance is far better outcome than Medicaid. Even the same sickness of person has nothing to do with how sick somebody was when they started. And then the the even more alarming thing is, it is very common in these studies. These are peer-reviewed studies in the medical literature that the people with Medicaid do worse than the patients with no insurance whatsoever.
0: Now okay? I, I got to stop you there because I. Uh, here at EconTalk, we we often talk about how unreliable peer reviewed studies are. So that's a plus, but uh, there's always a lot of choices to be made in how you evaluate and measure, et cetera. And people have biases and, and access to grind. Why would I want to hear the underlying intuition of why somebody's on Medicaid is going to get? I understand first. I, I don't know why. I'd like to know why they might get worse treatment than mm-hmm. somebody who's got a you know a luxurious, as it's often called, private insurance program, and then the person who has no insurance. What's going on at the patient level that would make yeah, that what, possible? What's
1: going on at the patient level is that when the government, well, let's talk about Medicaid specifically. Medicaid has a, a uh, it, it's a type of insurance policy, just like basically any other insurance. And there are significant limits to what Medicaid will pay for in terms of Diagnostics and treatments, therapies, and so when you restrict uh, the options that doctors have, uh, and in this case, we assume that this is the cause because the patients are the same. We've already controlled the studies have controlled yeah, that's for the patients. Of course, that's hard to do. Well, we have we have, well, some, we have observable differences between them, but okay. no, no, not not in these studies. In these studies, yeah, I mean, in these studies, they've controlled for all the confounding medical risk factors. That they can Diab- Yeah, all the things that can be measured. They don't
0: have genetic code. They, you know, well, there could, there okay. could be genetic differences between Okay, but two you, know, you can hypothesize
1: things, but uh, basically, uh, what is known uh, in the standard way these things are done, it's, it's, it's pretty rigorous. Uh, well, the
0: part I'm willing to concede is the, that's why I asked before X stage lung cancer, you know, a, a sub, at least a medical diagnosis that's constant across the groups.
1: Yeah, no, they took medical diagnoses constant, but also other medical, co- what's called comorbid conditions. Obesity, By the way, people that, yeah, smoking, smoking yeah. obesity, diabetes, all these things they controlled for and what they came, because it would be unfair to say, oh, this person did worse after surgery. Well, it turned out, well, they were diabetic. That's why. Uh, so you have to control for all uh, medical uh, comorbid conditions are very relevant here. So no doubt. once you've con- uh, controlled for those things, you ask, well, why would somebody with Medicaid do worse? It's because the treatment options are are worse. For the doctors and hospitals, they're, they're restricted in what they're going to do. This is the insurance. This is what's available. Now, why would it be better for no insurance? Because with no insurance at all, uh, there, there are basically three things or two or three things that happen with, for people with no insurance. They, they get medical care. They either get it by paying out of pocket or they get it by some other form of some other part of the system pays or the third is it's done for free literally for free so called charitable care yeah and in the in the instance of other forms of payment well because actually there's something called disproportionate share payments that the federal government gives to hospitals who treat patients who are indigent and have no insurance there are, there are ways that monies are shifted around to compensate but in the end, though, the, the, the patients with no insurance have no restriction on what they're going to get once they're being taken care of. Then it's simply, this is what we're going to do for this patient, whether we're going to get paid for it or not, is a decision of you know how, how, how the person giving the care uh, is going to have to make.
0: So we're sitting on the campus here at Stanford University. Are you saying that a Stanford professor who strolls and strolls not going to stroll, but a Stanford professor who's being treated for— Lung cancer at Stanford Hospital is going to get no better treatment than a homeless person who walks in when he's diagnosed with the same condition.
1: No, what I'm saying is that the, what I'm saying is that the group studies, uh, that have been published show that it's common, although not universally true, that people with Medicaid insurance do worse than people with no insurance. On any given individual, I'm not so sure that applies. And uh, and does everyone get the same care? I, I don't know how you would, I, I'm not sure that that would be a realistic I, I'm
0: just pressing because I'd love to know what Medicaid rules
1: out that a private insurer supports or that well, a person... Well, driver... I'll give you an example in general. Medicaid pays about 60% uh, for things that that private insurance pays for, 60% of the rate, and so you know the fact of the matter is that all these things. You know, money is, as an economist, you obviously know, is a is a key incentive for how what things get done. Healthcare costs money. You know, it's it's. You know, despite what people want to believe, healthcare is not free. Someone must pay, and and, and things just don't happen for nothing. And so, if if Medicaid, and actually, when, when you look at the data, which actually I happened to do yesterday. On, there were surveys on why doctors don't accept Medicaid patients. Of the huge percentage of doctors, more than half, that do not even accept new Medicaid patients anymore, when you ask of these five or six factors, why? 70% of them say the number one factor is the reimbursement. They're not even going to take the patient because they're losing money on every patient.
0: And that's why we need to force them to take them and and make the payment more generous. And that way we could all have the same great health care. Or better or worse, depending on how ironic you want to be, we need to get rid of that private insurance so we can all have the same quality, which is often what you hear in Defense of Canada.
1: Well, uh, and this brings up something that I want to point out about the WHO ranking, to circle back, that first ranking, that big study, was that it turned out that equality was a better outcome for quality of care. Equal outcome in that country was, was higher as a ranking than disparate outcomes, even if, uh, even though all the outcomes were better. Uh, what I mean that is poorly articulated, but you if you had idea. everybody gets A or B or C level care in country X versus another country where everybody gets C level care, country X with A, Bs, and Cs was worse in the ranking than the country that got everybody a C. Yeah, because they decided equality to the quality in and of important. itself. Yeah, yeah. equality is, was more important than quality.
0: Let's talk about another example, which I've uh, been fascinated because it's because it's an example of where technology in recent years has been, I think, an incredible improvement of quality of life. And that's uh, hip replacement, which you talk about in the book. And another example, I don't remember if you talk about it, but knee replacement is mm-hmm. another example where older people lose mo- tremendous loss of mobility uh, and opportunity to... to Play tennis and other just walk, get around because their knees and hips give out. And now we have an
1: explosion
0: in the availability in the United States of those procedures. How does the U.S. compare to other countries in those things?
1: Right. In comparing the countries uh, where more government control is exercised on these kinds of access to these kinds of treatments, like the National Health Service and United Kingdom or Canada, uh, the U.S. does better. The U.S. has far more, not only access to these life-changing treatments like hip replacement, knee replacement, cataract surgery, but better outcomes. And so what, what happens is that the, it's, it's not something that is necessarily measured in life expectancy, but it is certainly me- measurable in quality of life. Now, quality of life is difficult to measure, sure. but when you look at the, uh, at the idea of being able to take care of day-to-day activities by being able to walk or being able to see uh, in terms of cataract replacement, I mean, I think it's kind of uh, obvious that you don't want to wait a year to get a cataract operation. Even though you're going to live the same, it's better to get it sooner if you Every need day. it. Every day is there's no, there's no question.
0: <laughs> yeah. And how big are those, differences? Cause, well, th- those they-
1: differences? Those differences are huge. And what's interesting is that they're also economically related. And this is something else that people don't understand. Yes, it costs more money to get the hip replacement surgery. But on the other hand, the indirect then cost of not getting it.
0: Costs more in the United States than elsewhere. No,
1: saying. no, what no. I'm saying is oh. that getting the surgery versus not getting the surgery. Okay, you're adding costs by getting the surgery. Correct. There's it no adds doubt about to our that.
0: expenditure on your It adds to your expenditure. You could have saved. You could have avoided it.
1: But you could, you're also saving money by, by not losing money. Let's just say, for example, that person can't go to work for, for three months and needs assisted care or can't be productive. And you know, there's all kinds of indirect and direct economic uh, losses and expenditures that relate to things. So actually, in, in many instances, the use of so-called expensive technology actually saves money down the road indirectly. But this has been neglected on a lot of the kind of low-hanging fruit type economic studies of the cost of medical care
0: argument that some of these are wasteful expenditures that our system needs to get rid of, purge and all that. Um, One other example you give, which is, you know, I've heard this before, you quantify it very dramatically, is uh, the time you have to wait to see a specialist uh, for some kind of treatment. You hear horror stories sometimes about other systems, you don't know whether they're representative or not. Uh, You find dramatic, you, you cite dramatic differences in how long till these procedures are implemented uh, for people who need these treatments or want these treatments, uh, and how long it takes to see a specialist.
1: Right, absolutely. And and you look at places like, uh, you know, the best studied ones are Canada and the United Kingdom, uh, but the uh, countries all over Western Europe have these sorts of studies, where in, in the United Kingdom, for instance, they've put this law in place that they do not want anyone to wait more than 18 weeks for a referral to a specialist. Okay, in the United States, that, that kind of, uh, that doesn't even exist. The, we I, I mentioned it. something about uh, getting a, a cardiovascular procedure, what's a, a, a minimally invasive treatment, say a balloon angioplasty or something, even in the non-emergency setting. Uh, it's considered unacceptable if it's more than a couple days in the United States. We don't even consider these things in terms of weeks or months like other countries do. And in fact, you know, the, these other countries have n- not only uh, instituted rules to try to deal with these really, uh, what you might say are immoral weights for medical care because of their public, so-called public systems. Not only do they try to institute rules, but they also have had multiple lawsuits going to Supreme Court and now have instituted privatization all over the world, countries with It started out as more and more government control with these so-called national single-payer systems, are introducing privatization to help compensate for their severe waiting lists.
0: In Canada, I know recently there was a court case in the last five years, right, where they allowed people to purchase services from a doctor, which was illegal before,
1: correct? That's right. right. It's hard to believe. And this is all over the world. You look at studies from Denmark, uh, you know, all over Western Europe, places that uh, are really the models for our healthcare reform for, from the people who want a single payer system here. Uh, but, but the reality is that the United States not only has the best outcomes, but we have by far the best access. And this has been a gross distortion uh, in, the, in the, not only in the, in the press or in the media, but in movies and things like this that rely on anecdotes is that the access to care is so much better in the United States. Given that it isn't perfect, given that we need to uh, do everything we can to improve access for everyone, it's by far better in the United States than these other countries. Uh,
0: So you're suggesting it's not just the rich people who don't have to wait for a specialist? Absolutely not. Uh, Do do we have any data on waiting times in America? You say the average is a lot lower than elsewhere, but what about... Differences across classes of people that we've been talking about already—Medicaid or other people without insurance. Well, I think I think with low quality insurance or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, the
1: the big problems with uh, that that is kind of analogous to waiting time in the U.S. Is this idea that uh, Medicaid patients now have problems even finding doctors that will take them? Okay, so anywhere from forty-five to sixty percent of doctors in the United States broadly will not accept new Medicaid patients. And let's just say only 5% of doctors or less than 10% of doctors do not accept new private insurance patients. Okay. So there's a difference there. And and this is a huge problem for Medicaid patients. Again, stemming from what I said, which is the patients, doctors and hospitals lose money on every patient. You can't make up for that in volume, (laughs) as the old joke goes. But the, you know, the other issue there is that it points out the, severe flaw in the logic of the recent health care reform, which is to put 15 to 20 million more people into Medicaid. Not only is that a financially unsustainable system, but you're really not offering people access to medical care if half of them or more are not even going to be able to get a doctor.
0: Well, as Hayek said, the curious task of economics is to Demonstrate to men how little they really understand about what they imagine they can design. So they're going. They'll. They'll have to fix. They'll figure that out too. But uh, maybe not. Um, so, so let me challenge you. The book and and there, you have other treatments of these data elsewhere that I'm, I hope we can get some some of these charts up on the website. Uh, they're really quite striking uh, in terms of painting a picture where the U.S. looks awfully good relative to the rest of the world. In cases where it doesn't look good, you argue perhaps persuasively, that there are reasons of statistics or definition that are misleading. When that isn't an issue, the U.S. dominates in terms of quality and often dramatically so. What would you ignore? What would you leave out? Uh, are there other measures that critics of you have suggested paint a less
1: cheerful picture? Well, you know, that's, uh, that's making me think quite a bit as I'm sitting here. I, I think that the, the measures that people cite that paint the U.S. in a uh, kind of substandard or inferior quality are really the measures that have been, uh, that we've talked about. Um, it's really all about life expectancy and infant mortality. And then there's a third measure, which has been cited, which I go into in, in the book and we didn't talk about, is is the number of uninsured. Right. right? Because this is really when, you know, I do a lot of international traveling, I read the newspapers and speak to people outside of the U.S., and it is portrayed as scandalous sure. that we have 50 million or so Americans with no health insurance, which, of course, as I mentioned, is equated with no health care. As if but, they're, yeah, they're as bleeding they're to death synonymous. in the streets
0: if, if they don't, they selling But, but
1: I think here, this is, this is a measure that really has to be scrutinized, and I did in, in my book, this fifty so-called fifty million uninsured. Because when you really look at who does who is this population, and you look at the the actual raw data, the documents, the U.S. Census Bureau documents and others, uh, you find out that it's not really fifty million people. Uh, after you say, okay, well, about ten to fifteen million people are not U.S. citizens in that group, and I'm, and whether, I'm not saying they shouldn't get health care. But I'm not sure that you're going to reform U.S. health uh, system to, to give get them insurance. Non-citizens' to get, insurance. Correct.
0: That's going to be a okay. challenge.
1: Although some and, of them I assume not that
0: group, but there are others who are illegal who do have health insurance. Who can get health yeah, and do who get, get healthy? Yeah, right, this is a group course. that
1: doesn't. And then you take uh, a look at who answered the U.S. Census Bureau survey and said they didn't have insurance. And it turns out that let's just say I don't remember the exact number, but let's just say it's about another ten million or so that said they didn't have insurance, that actually were using insurance. And we know that because the the Census Bureau people went and looked and looked up and found medical records. These people had insurance that were they were using, mainly Medicaid. Uh, They didn't
0: consider that insurance. They probably,
1: when they answered the question, I have to assume they thought the question meant, do you have private insurance? But be that as it may, this is in appendix, uh, one of the appendices of the U.S. Census Bureau document, Appendix C. Uh, is that Good to know. they they actually uh were aware the US census we were but they didn't change the response to the question so when you whittle down and then there's another 13 million adults and children of these 50 million people 13 million adults and children who actually are already eligible for public insurance programs Medicaid a tiny bit Medicare and the children's health insurance program S chip uh that simply did not sign the paperwork because they haven't accessed the system. So they say they didn't So they haven't used it. Why You wouldn't necessarily, I think, common sense is you wouldn't want to redesign another system to make them eligible for that when they're already eligible for the current public health insurance system. So you're left with a population of less than 5% of people in the United States who don't have insurance or who are not already eligible for current government insurance programs, I would not call that a crisis in the uninsured
0: so we 're going to come back to this at the end because you know, the fact that they do have that a big chunk of them are covered by the current system or the current system serves them well uh, i 'm so sympathetic to the idea, and I, I think you may be as well that we may disagree, we may not be happy with um so-called Obamacare, but the alternative that it replaced—quote—so-called current system right now before Obamacare is full, fully uh, implemented—is not a great system either for for expenditure on the expenditure side. So we'll come back to that. One thing I want to mention, though, one of the criticisms you also hear of the U.S. healthcare system is that there's these very disparate uh, treatment outcomes depending on where you happen to be, where you know which kind of doctor you happen to get. And there's a big push uh, to use data and expertise to uh, standardize healthcare treatment. Uh, do you think there are lost opportunities within our decentralized, somewhat decentralized system? I love when people say, well, we know healthcare markets don't work. Look at the Amer- United States. Well, we don't have a very yeah, free market in healthcare no. right now, it's distorted in all kinds of ways. But uh, some people criticize the result. Uh, because of these disparate treatment um, choices that doctors make and patients uh, end up with. What do you think of that argument? That we need a more standardized, top-down...
1: Yeah, I think that uh, there's... It makes me a little bit nervous, although I think intuitively it is true that we would like to make decisions based on data, and uh, a lot of medicine, in fact, is kind of art rather than science to a great extent. However... Um, A, there are problems with the studies like the Dartmouth, uh, Atlas and different expenditures for different regi- regions, particularly since many of these studies are just talking about the people who died. I mean, there's a very, that's a distorting statistic. When you're just talking about the people who died and you're going back and look at their healthcare. Th- that's, that's a little bit different than talking about the way, uh, healthcare is given in general. Yeah. But true. separating that, uh, side of things, when you start talking about standardizing care, um, I, I'm very nervous about that concept because when you look at the countries who are standardizing, their outcomes are worse. And so uh, who's going to standardize this care? I personally don't think that health economists and government appointees are the people who should be standardizing my care. I don't want them involved don't you in trust my him, care Scott? at all. Don't you trust them? Come <laughs> on. You
0: said health economists. I know some <laughs> yeah. wonderful people. I'm sure some of them are Super listening now and getting mad for a whole bunch of reasons, by the way, yeah. not just this one.
1: Yeah, but I think that the, these are the you know, uh, tongue-in-cheek, of course, but you know, everybody uh, from our politicians who push single-payer pay, single to all the health economists I know, when they want medical care for themselves and their families they go and they seek out on their own the best specialist care, the best doctors, the best hospitals that they can find. They want the freedom to choose. When you start having a top-down system with standardized, so-called standardizing care, you have to realize that this is all in the context of, of medical care in the U.S. particularly, which is evolving very rapidly, even today. It's not like it's mature now, and so all the advances yeah. are done. No, and when you look at What's happening with minimally invasive care, safer treatments, safer diagnoses, now we're in this era where there's a confluence of molecular biology and genetics potential entering cust- in medical care. Potential potential for customization of care. Absolutely. Everything is important. changing very rapidly. By the time the government or any other body starts to standardize things, it's already old. If you think computers move quickly... You ought to, you ought to look at the scientific literature on how medical care works. And so it, it's a, it's a, it's an intuitively attractive argument to say that things should be standardized. On the other hand, I haven't found a system with better outcomes that has standardized care. They're all worse. So I, I'm not sure it's a, it's a direction to go. I would prefer to have a direction where the government gets out of the business of dictating medical care, where government isn't even the insurer at all or government helps people who can't afford insurance, but doesn't dictate the care by virtue of being the insurer. And I think this is a, a huge problem with the way uh, Medicaid and and other outcomes are, and, and with the, the way things are right now. Facilitate competition, facilitate innovation, but get out of the way.
0: And we'll talk some more about that in a minute, but uh, you, mentioned, um, you mentioned the Dartmouth study that Probably the most famous study that I know of on healthcare is the RAND study, which purported to find that expenditure was not terribly important in outcomes. It just led to more spending, uh, and that there's enormous savings in the current system, which I think is both left and right have used to justify their own views. But I'm curious what you think of the the science of that, given that you're suggesting that the, the expenditure levels in the United States, which lead to earlier seeing a specialist, um, uh, more access to technology for treatment for cancer, strokes, etc., uh, knee replacements, MRIs, uh, all these things which are expensive. You're, the the RAND study suggests a lot of that's just just feel good. It doesn't have an impact on it. What you how your outcomes are it just makes you feel better that you've you've done something. Is what do you think? Well,
1: about yeah, I, I my comment on the the RAND data to me shows something a little bit different. And the RAM RAND data to me shows that when you increase out of pocket expense. And people then make a more of a value-based decision because they're actually spending money. Their own money. Their own money. or And they certainly are aware of what things cost as opposed to the current system where someone else is paying for everything, quote, unquote, and therefore it's free uh, in people's heads, even though it isn't. It's, it's nice. So, it's very appealing. So what, what people uh, like when it. people pay out of pocket, they make a decision to say, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make decisions. I'm going to save money. And their outcomes didn't get affected. Okay, so you could say, okay, it indirectly uh, shows that some of these expenses are not worth anything. That's probably true overall. There's certainly waste in the system. There's no, no question.
0: Doubt. No doubt. Uh,
1: but my, I think my view is that I would prefer to have people decide with their doctor, uh, of course, because they're going to need help with this. But in the end, it's an individual decision for yourself and your family what you think is worth spending money on. I do not feel comfortable with having the government say, okay, this is not available because it costs too much money. That's a very different scenario with two different ways of saying we're not going to spend as much money.
0: Of course, you know, the standard criticism of that view is that, let me say it a different way. I think one of the great benefits of our current system, even though I don't like our current system, The current system, which allows people to spend other people's money, is you don't have to. Most people don't have a lot of anxiety about how much money they spend. Turns out, it's an unsustainable system, I suspect. And the alternatives, you have different kind of anxiety. You have anxiety whether you're going to get the best treatment. You have you have unknown anxiety that you didn't get the best treatment because it didn't evolve and didn't develop. Um, You have to wait, which is an incredibly uh, horrible thing when you're ill and, and your life's at risk and of course people die it's a hard, it's just it's an incredible tragedy um so what you're suggesting is is that if we went to a where people with their doctors and 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 families made these decisions instead of the government but not everybody's going to have that that freedom they're going to be poor people who can't afford the treatments they choose not to but you know it's it's a um it's a uh it's a terrible choice to have to make, and they'll often make a choice that's the best for them, but they don't have good choices.
1: Well, I mean, I think this is where, again, this is a a, a problem with this misinformation uh, that people think that there is no alternative to reform other than the so-called Obamacare type of more centralization. Uh, in fact, there is an alternative to reform. And the alternative to reform, that, that, because, I mean, uh, the first statement I want to make is that the real crisis in U.S. healthcare care is the cost, not the quality, and not the number of uninsured. And so Obamacare, the Affordability Care Act, does not address the cost. I mean, right. that's a fact by all estimates. Now, let's talk about how to address the cost to give people the choices. Because I agree with you, no one wants a system. Where people, uh, who, who do not have, who are low income, uh, or poor people have really severe problems with access and not have, ad- do not have adequate choices for the quality of care that is available. Um, given that there's no guarantee that everything, that anything is ever equal, uh, in the real world, uh, but the reforms to bring the cost down and to increase the choices for people, including poor people, are what we should be talking about.
0: What would some of those be?
1: And some of those are the following. But I think there's reforms for private health care as well as government programs and then uh, the tax treatment. There's three basic categories of reform. Uh, The private reforms are to uh, to, uh, get rid of the artificial barriers to competition that exist right now in the system. People say, oh, yes, we know, like you mentioned, the free market doesn't work. Well, the free market doesn't really exist. Never been tried. Uh, it's been never tried really been tried. And so these bizarre barriers that are archaic, uh, including not a, being unable to buy health insurance outside of your own state. I mean, this is a huge re- re- and re- really uh, absurd setup to protect the status quo and what are really special interest groups. For sure. Uh, and in this kind of paternalistic view that people have to be protected. Uh, people in New Jersey can't buy insurance from, uh, from Pennsylvania, even though it's right next door, and uh, there might be a significant difference in the price. Another problem with private insurance and the cost of insurance here I'm talking about... Which
0: is, reflect, which ends up affecting health care price,
1: too. Absolutely. Is that the states have put in these uh, mandated coverages to the tune of over 2,000 of them in the U.S., uh, and it's certainly true... That many people are forced to buy insurance that covers things they do not have any possibility of using. For instance, in vitro fertilization, acupuncture, massage therapy, wigs. There's all kinds of uh, things that are mandated that everyone in that state must buy insurance that covers things that they don't want. I'm the way that, and and what is the effect of that? The effect of these mandates is, by some estimates, at least 50% or more of the cost of insurance is due to these mandated coverages that have been built up over the year and are similar to the principle that's in the affordability care act, which is defining minimal essential benefits packages. Instead, people should be able to buy insurance like catastrophic insurance that is much cheaper and have these health savings accounts, for instance, to use for small, uh, small expenses. And then some of the other uh reforms include reforming the public system. Let people have choices, including poor people. Let people take money that was going to go for Medicaid insurance and use that money to shop around for private insurance, including high deductible plans that are cheaper with health savings accounts. Let's see when insurers, as is true for every other good or service in the U.S. historically, when people have a market to compete for, when, when companies have markets to compete for, there's competition on the basis of price and value. And you end up creating a market that is very competitive and that eventually prices come down. If, if people want to buy something that's cheaper, it'll eventually be there. And the same thing has happened, for instance, with, with computers. People say, well, I couldn't possibly shop around for medical care or insurance. I don't understand it's it. It's too well, complicated. Not many people understand literally how a computer works. I think that's a very difficult concept to explain to somebody. Yeah, we are do a pretty good job of shopping for computers. And so the public systems need significant reforms. More flexibility, more choice, and more competition. Prices come down. And then there's, there's other things uh, in that kind of uh, realm, and that is to increase transparency of information. Medical care must be the one of the only, if not the only good or service we buy and use without knowing what it costs until later. And this is or, totally or ever. For most or, of us. Or we can never decipher a, what it costs. Yeah. And so these are things that uh, are, it's the kind of this veil of secrecy, I call it, around the price of medical care, which allows doctors and hospitals this kind of blanket of protection of what the price is. Let's see. When UCSF and Stanford, neighboring medical centers, must put out their prices, let's see what happens to those prices. I guarantee you they come down just on the basis of transparency of information. And then the third category of reform, really the big category, is, is tax reform. Because the way the, cert, the current system is, you're encouraged to spend more money on health care. And by that, I mean health insurance and health care. It's endless how much you can Uh, deduct from your income on the basis of what you, what you, what your employer provides for employer sponsored.
0: It's treated as a tax free benefit.
1: It's a tax free benefit, which is kind of a historical accident, uh, for lack of a better word. And, uh, you know, there's no reason that the value of a dollar for health care should be higher than the dollar spent for something else. The, The system right now encourages more money, encourages higher prices and is is a financial, a massive financial burden to the system. So it
0: encourages compensation to be given in the tax-free form rather than the taxable form, and so you'd rather have your tax-free health care than than pay for it out of pocket, but once it's tax-free, we want a good one because it's relatively cheap. Right. So that, uh, do do we have estimates of how much that contributes to the the, uh, cost of insurance? I mean, it's...
1: The, the cost of insurance, uh, per person, uh, I don't know, but, you know, we lose hundreds of billions of dollars to, uh, because of this tax exclusion. That's, that's known. Yeah. And when you decrease that, there are various ways to deal with that. Uh, but basically, I think what, what I think is an important point is we're trying to, this idea tries to inject some kind of cost consciousness into people kind of uh, value based decisions should be made with everything that money spent for because like we know but fail to kind of admit as a public is that healthcare is not free it's not going to become free and i'm not sure that there's any right to healthcare that's more important than say the right to having a home or clothes or food uh i'm not 100% sure why somehow healthcare is so special given all these other essential things
0: well, you know, it, it is a um, it's a primal part of us. Robin Hanson argued uh, on this program a long time ago that uh, a lot of what we do in the healthcare area is if we had a very creative argument is um, is window dressing that we get benefit from because we convince each other that we care about each other. Which uh, I'm a skeptic about the theory, but it's a provocative theory. It's an interesting idea, and there's no doubt that. You earlier criticized the World Health Organization rankings that I think correctly criticized them that said equality is a value in and of itself. But there is something emotionally troubling about somebody getting access to a cure or to dialysis or to a transplant on the basis of income. I think it bothers a lot of people, whether it should or shouldn't, whether the long-run benefits of that because of innovation and profits would, would make up for it. think psychologically and emotionally, there's
1: tremendous um, bias in our political system towards towards fighting And and I'm not opposed to that. And I think the answer is to allow people that have less money, more choice, more flexibility, and increase the competitive, uh, facilitate the competitive forces that will bring the cost down so people can get better access to care. There's no reason why people that are poor have to suffer through the outcomes that their Medicaid insurance gives them. There is no government official that would opt for Medicaid. I can guarantee you that. It's inadequate, and it's really kind of an immoral thing to push people into that system when we know the system is a failure, the system of Medicaid insurance I'm talking about. So, yes, it's true. The question is how to go about improving the system. And I don't think the answer is in the Affordability Care Act, which essentially dumbs down the specialty care and the excellence and the outcomes that we have in the United States in this so-called guise of, quote-unquote, fairness. I think that it's a it's a flawed model that will turn back the clock on the medical innovation that has led to the U.S. having such superior health care.
0: My guest today has been Scott Atlas. He is the author of An Excellent Health. Scott, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you.